If you would open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, we're going to be looking at verses uh, 24 through 27. I'm going to pick up on 28 next week, but I'm just going to read 24 through 28, uh, and let's hear what our Lord Jesus is calling us to. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of, the, of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And if you look down to verse chapter 17, he's referring to the transfiguration. When you wake up in the morning, what are the first things that come into your mind? Here's, here's typically what happens with me in the morning. I wake up and I look at my watch and it's usually glowing in the dark because I'm a notoriously early riser and I'm asking this question, oh, what time is it now? <laughs> or maybe you're thinking, oh, I hope the coffee maker's on. What's for breakfast? If you're like me, you're saying something like, what day is it? Is it Friday? Saturday? Monday? And then when you start thinking about what day it is, usually an agenda starts coming in as well, right? What do you need to get done that day? Who do you need to talk to? What needs to, what needs to happen? What would happen if the moment you wake up in the morning, there is something else that comes into your mind? It's a question. It's a question like this. You wake up and your first thoughts are, what is the most important thing this day? What is the thing of greatest importance today? Just imagine Jesus' words, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Every day you wake up, you are faced with a decision. A decision of what matters most, of who you're going to live for. And what Jesus says is there's basically two options. You're either going to live for yourself or you're going to live for Christ. And what Jesus is going to call us to this morning is come live for me. The call this morning is the call of the Christ to follow me, and not only was it true back 2,000 years, it's just as poignant today. Our Christ is a risen Christ, and he's calling you to follow him. In this passage, we, we see two moves. We see the call of Christ to follow him in verse 24. That's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. And then in verses 25, 26, and 27, Jesus provides a rationale. 
three reasons to follow him. And you can see they're all signaled by a word, a word for. You can see it at the beginning of each sentence. So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at the call to follow Jesus. And then we're going to look somewhat briefly at his rationale. The reasons to follow him. What I want you to understand this morning is the point Jesus is making here. In order to follow him, in order to live for him, in order to be his disciple, you're going to have to die to yourself. In order to live for Christ, you must die to yourself, and in Christ, you will find life. So if you look at verse 24, we read this. If anyone would come after me, let me give you a little background on that word me, on Jesus. Remember, it's in verse 16 of chapter 16 that, that Peter has just confessed to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And what he means by that is saying, you're that Psalm 2 guy. You're the Second Samuel 7 guy. You're the one, the king that was promised, the anointed one of God who would come and take up David's throne and reign forever. You're the one. And Jesus responds by him saying, blessed are you, Simon Peter. You didn't figure that one out on your own. That was God's kindness in revealing that to you. And then if you look down in verse 21, Jesus clarifies the work of the Christ. He says to his disciples, from that time, or we read, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. What Jesus is saying here is clarifying for his disciples. He's like, hey, you, you got it right. I'm the Christ, but let me just help you understand. I've come to do something you're not expecting. I've come to go to Jerusalem. I've come to suffer, I've come to die, and I've come to be raised from the dead. Peter, of course, says, no, never, no, it's not going to happen. Peter, and then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're hindrance to me. You're not thinking God's thoughts, you're thinking man's thoughts. And every time we wake up in the morning, we usually default into mankind thinking, don't we? So this morning, as we think about that me, if anyone would come after me, you got to realize who it is. It's the Christ, the one who would come, suffer, die, be raised. He's the one born of a virgin. He's the one that was tempted by Satan. Everything he could get to throw at Jesus, he withstood it. This is the one when he came, he said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. This is the one who came and exercised his authority over sin, so that you may know that he, your sins are forgiven, get up and walk. He came and exercised his authority over disease and over demons, over raging deeps of the Sea of Galilee. He even exercised his authority over death. This is the one that's saying, if anyone would come after me. He's the one who said, your greatest problem isn't outside of you. Your greatest problem is inside of you. Your sinful heart, which defiles you. That's why he came. To save sinners from their sin. 
He's the one that miraculously fed 5,000 Jews, Jewish men, and miraculously fed 4,000 Gentile men, probably 20,000 people altogether. This is the one who is the long-anticipated Christ, the son of David, who would come and take up the throne, and he established and came to take up his throne through suffering and being crucified and being raised from the dead. It's Jesus, the Christ, who's God's plan for the fullness of time that he set in motion before the foundation of the world. That's who this is that is speaking. It's the Christ with all authority on heaven and earth. What does this kind of backstory show us? This is no ordinary guy calling us to come follow him. This is the risen Christ. God incarnate. And so his words carry weight. And so in looking at this call, if anyone would come after me, anyone, he turns from Peter and he turns to his disciples and he speaks very generally. If, if anyone, if someone would come after me, the invitation, the, the welcome is wide. If anyone in this room would come after me, if anyone living around Lincoln Square would, would come after me. Anyone living on an uptown, Frank neighborhood, anywhere in Kenosha, if anyone would come after me. And that word would, if you look at that word, it, it, underneath it is this sense of desire, willingness. If anyone would choose to come after me. That two word, those two words, come after in, in a literal sense, it, it means get in line, right? I'm not sure if you, this happened to you growing up, but when I grew up, I would have to get into all sorts of different lines, and I would have to get into lines with kind of different ways. For example, get in line, Michael, according to alphabetical order. And so Salvati is at the end, and it always comes after an R. Or I would have to get in line according to my birthday, which is in December. So I would always have to come after November. Or I'd have to get in line according to my height, and so I would come after someone who is shorter than me. What is Jesus talking about when he means come after me? Is he calling you to come after him in terms of your height, your birthday, your last name? The relationship that he's talking about is one of discipleship. It's a discipleship relationship. His calling you to come after him is a master calling his follower, a, a teacher calling his learner, come after me. And so what this is, is a call to discipleship. And what that means is that when you become someone's disciple, you submit yourself to that person's authority. You listen and learn from that person's teaching. You obey that person's commands. You live according to the way that person lived their life. And so this call to follow me has everything to do with Jesus. To come under Jesus, to follow after Jesus. 
Everyone on the planet's following somebody. You're a disciple of someone. You're coming after somebody. You are submitting to someone. You're learning from someone. You're obeying someone. You are living your life after somebody. The question is, who is it? Who's your Lord? Who's your master? Who's your teacher? The chief rival for living for Christ is you living for yourself. You cannot live for yourself in Jesus simultaneously. You can only have one master. You can only have one Lord. And Jesus is saying, I'm the one. I'm the Christ. Come follow me. In order for you to live for Christ, you must die to yourself. And so here's the invitation. If anyone would come after me, and now Jesus is going to turn this to three commands. If you're willing to follow me, if you're willing to come under my leadership, if you're willing to become my disciple, then you must deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. There are three commands. There are three, they're called imperatives. Do this. If you're going to follow Jesus, you must do this. It's not optional. In the English version, in the ESV at least, it says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And it kind of softens the, the force of, of the command. Jesus is saying, if you're going to come after me, you must do this. You must deny yourself. You must take up your cross. You must follow me. So let's be clear on what he means by denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following him. What does it mean to deny yourself? Well, at a basic sense, it's this. You cannot follow Jesus without first denying yourself. You can't live for yourself and Christ. It's one or the other. Now, the temptation here is to read something into the command to deny yourself that's not there. So, for example, you may think, well, in order for me to deny, for, to follow Jesus, I need to deny myself eating Oreo cookies or binging on Netflix or gossiping about this person. Now, those things may be true, but what Jesus is saying here He's not commanding you to give something up. He's commanding you to deny yourself who you are. It's a call to relinquish all claims on your life. That's what he's saying. That word deny means to disassociate yourself from someone. Jesus is saying disassociate yourself from living a life for yourself so that you can associate with Christ and live a life for him. That's what he's saying. Do you remember in Matthew 26, Jesus and Peter, Peter's like, I'm, I'm going to go to my death for you. And Jesus is like, actually, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And the word deny Jesus used in Matthew 26 is the same word deny Jesus is using here. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. So remember what happened in Matthew 26? The 
Peter's denials, someone comes up and says to Peter, hey, you also were with Jesus. And Peter says, I don't know what you mean. He's playing dumb. I don't know what you're talking about. What do you mean? He's denying Jesus. He's disassociating himself from Jesus. And then a, a girl comes up and says to him, this man was with Jesus. And what does Peter do? I do not know the man, referring to Jesus. He denies him. He's disassociating himself from Jesus. And then we read this. Certainly you too are one of them, one of the disciples, for your accent betrays you. He's from Galilee. And what Peter does is this. He calls down a curse, he swears, and he says, I do not know the man. He denies him three times. He disassociates himself from Jesus. And the irony is, is that Jesus is commanding Peter right here to say, deny yourself and follow me. And what happens in Matthew 26 is, Peter denies Christ for himself. The point I'm trying to make is this. To deny yourself means to disassociate yourself from yourself, from living for yourself in order to live for Christ. You deny any claim on your life. It's saying, I'm not in control of my life anymore. Jesus is. I, I don't own my life. Jesus does. I do not claim to know what's best for me. Jesus does. That's what it means to deny yourself, to disassociate yourself from living a life unto yourself. Another way to say it is this. It's to reject a self-centered life for a Christ-centered life. It's to reject a self-determined life to live a Christ-determined life. You can't have it both ways. Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, you must deny yourself. The Apostle Paul captures this in Galatians 2.20, where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me, denying himself. So in order for us to follow Jesus, we first must not deny ourselves. And then second, we must take up our cross. And again, here we got to be careful of not reading something in that Jesus is not saying. What does Jesus mean when he says, take up your cross? Now, all of us have burdens to carry. There are people in this room who are carrying burdens of a terminal illness, who are carrying a burden of a strained relationship. Maybe it's a spouse or maybe it's a wayward child trying to make ends meet, carrying the responsibility for a lot of people. That can be a burden to carry. And what people can say in those moments is something like this. Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, we all have our crosses to carry. 
We all have our crosses to bear. Is that what Jesus means here? The question we ask by, to get what Jesus is actually saying is by asking this. How would his disciples have understood what he's saying? How would they have received his words to deny themselves and to take up their crosses? H how would they have resp responded to it? And, and any first century resident of Palestine would have understood Jesus to be commanding them to prepare to die. To take up your cross. Do you remember Dietrich Bonhoeffer? He, I was introduced to him when I was a new follower of Jesus in college. And he wrote this book called The Cost of Discipleship. And he's famous for saying, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. In our day, when we see a cross somewhere, we, we think of Christianity. We think religious stuff. If you see kind of a cross around somebody's neck, you think, well, maybe they're a Christian. Or a tattoo on their arm, it's like maybe they had some kind of religious experience. Or they got a cross kind of sewed into their leather jacket. You're thinking, okay, you know, there's some kind of, kind of connection with the Christian faith. And so nowadays, when we hear about the cross, we tend to think about Christianity, right? We think that it's religious. But in Jesus' day, the cross was not religious. It re represented a horrific, shameful death by execution. And so in order to try to capture that for you, I, I thought of a modern-day equivalent of kind of the first-century understanding of the cross. It would be the electric chair. Think about an electric chair. Maybe you've seen the Green Mile. A wooden chair, straps on the sides, and then this kind of skull, metal skull cap that would go over your head that runs the voltage through to put somebody to death. What Jesus is talking about here, when he talks about the cross, it's equivalent to an electrical chair. It's like Jesus is saying this. If anyone would come after me, he must relinquish all claims on his life, take up his electric chair, and follow me. When we read Jesus talking about the cross, he's talking about death. If you're going to come after me, be prepared to die. And so in that first command, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, relinquish claims on your life, if you're going to follow Jesus, take up your cross, you relinquish all claims to your death. Now, I've been asking myself a question all week long, and here it is. If I had known 20-something years ago that by becoming a follower of Jesus, that I was opening myself up to the possibility of suffering and even death, would I have still followed him? Would I still have chosen to say, yes, Lord, I will follow you anywhere? And my answer is, I think so. But now, fast forward that today. Knowing what I know about Jesus, having this command put squarely in front of me, as if Jesus himself is calling you and me to say, hey, if you follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and come after. Follow me. Would I do it today? 
And the answer is a resounding yes. You know why? Oh, he's worth it. Who he is, what he's done, what he's doing now, what he will do when he comes back, it's all worth it. It's all worth it. How about you? Today, knowing what Jesus is calling you to, to deny yourself, relinquish all claims on your life, and to come and take up your cross, even if that means suffering and death, to follow him, are you still willing to follow him? Are you willing to suffer and even perhaps die to take up your cross in order to follow him? If anyone would come after me, let him, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross and follow me. And let's look at this last command. Follow me. To follow Jesus is to live for Jesus. To follow Jesus is to become his disciple. And in order to live for Jesus, you must die to yourself daily. And so this command to follow me, it is an all-consuming, life-comprehensive call to discipleship. And there's two mistakes we can make. Mistake number one is this. To hear this call to discipleship as like a call to a kind of special unit in those who are Christians. You know how the Navy sailors, there's this thing, they're the people called the Navy SEALs, this elite group of people who do amazing hard things. What we can do in our minds is we can kind of put some kind of distinction between being a Christian and being a disciple. Like a disciple is the Navy SEALs of being a Christian. We make a subset out of that. Like... Okay, there's the everyday Christians, and then those, then they're the people who really kind of give up their life for Jesus. That's not biblical Christianity. If you look at Acts chapter 11, verse 26, what you read is this. It was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. You know what that means? Disciples of Jesus are Christians. They're one and the same. There's no distinction. If you are a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ, you are a Christian. And if you profess to be a Christian, you are to obey Jesus in all respects. The second mistake that we can make is to kind of make my discipleship a subset of my life. So, for example, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I also like to play golf every once in a while, and then 10 hours a week... I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. And what we're saying there is, you know, I've got my place in my life to follow Jesus, but that doesn't really bleed into these other areas. That's not biblical Christianity either. To be a follower of Jesus is to follow him all the time in every area of your life. To follow me means to follow him everywhere. Every week, I start up the week by doing a thing called roles and goals. I lay out what are the roles God has called me to and what are the goals I need to hit for each week. It's just a way of organizing my life. You know what the first one is? A disciple of Jesus. 
It governs everything. It governs my being a husband to Jenny. It governs me being a father to my four children. It governs me being a pastor of this church. I'm a follower of Jesus first and a pastor second. I follow him. It governs everything I do. Am I perfect? Absolutely not. Am I growing? Lord willing, yes. To be a disciple of Jesus means you follow him in every aspect of your life. Yesterday, I was uh, walking from the building, and I was walking down 8th uh, Avenue here, and I was crossed 58th Street. That's where the Heritage House is. And as I'm walking by, I see this group of people walk out from behind Heritage House. And I say, well, this is rather interesting. So there's like 12 to 15 people there, very diverse, grown men, boys, grown women, little girls, you know, a very diverse group. And in the middle of it is an Asian guy. And I hear him say, line up. And all these 12, 15 people, they line up. And what they do is they all in unison said, yes, sensei. And I'm just kind of walking. I'm like, what's going to happen now? And he says, you're going to sprint down to the sidewalk and back. Yes, sensei. Go. Down and back. This karate sensei had brought his disciples out into the side lawn of the heritage house to have them do some exercises for their good. And so these disciples were following their master. They were trusting and obeying him. When we follow Jesus, he's our sensei. And we trust and obey him in all that he is and all that he calls us to do. We say, yes, Lord Jesus. Yes, Lord Jesus. Gladly, Lord Jesus. And so what it means to trust him is this. We trust that he's sovereignly at work over the entire world and universe. That by his word, he's upholding the whole cosmic forces of all things. And so his timing is always perfect. His purposes are always good. And his words, what he speaks, you can build your life on them. They're trustworthy. They're reliable. And, and not only that, when his words put a claim on you and they call you to obey, the answer is yes. To follow Jesus is to say, yes, Lord. When was the last time you encountered a command from the Lord Jesus, from God's word, and your response was, yes, Lord. I'll do that. Yes, Lord. I'll obey you. Are, are you claiming something in your life right now as kind of like your own? Jesus, I'll obey you here and here and here, but when it comes to this area, that's still mine. Is there a command in your Bible that you conveniently kind of just kind of walk around, that you do not take it to heart because you don't want to change, you don't want to obey? When Jesus says, you cannot have Two masters. Man cannot serve both God 
and money. When you read something like this, are you kind of like, that's good, but I'm not going to think about what that means for me. Jesus wants you to take his words to heart. He wants to align you to align his life with who he is and what he says. And in every area of your life. I've got another question for you. This call that Jesus is calling us to is a costly, radical call. If you're hearing it right, you should be saying, whoa, he's asking me to give up everything for him. And that's right, because he is. So let me ask you, do you dilute the call? Are you diluting the call on your own life? So when Jesus says, deny yourself, are you somehow thinking in your mind, well, sort of deny yourself. Uh, sort of take up your cross. Sort of follow me. Or are you saying, no, I will do all of it. Are you diluting it for your children? When you talk about Jesus to them, are you talking to them about a Jesus who just kind of finds his little place in their heart? Or you're talking about a Jesus who requires this child of yours to give up their life to follow him. There's a big difference. When you talk to non-Christians and you talk about the faith to them, are you kind of like, let's not talk about the cost yet. We'll wait till you profess Jesus and then we'll come back and we'll talk about what it really means to, to cost to follow him. We don't need to dilute the message here. It's Jesus calling it. It's Jesus saying, deny yourself. It's Jesus saying, take up your cross. It's Jesus saying, follow me. And so this call, this invitation to follow him, it comes at cost. And the question is, is it worth it? Is it worth it to deny yourself? to follow Jesus? Is it worth it to take up your cross to suffer and possibly die for Jesus? Is it worth it to follow him in all that he commands all the days of your life? Yes. Yes, it is. Yes, it is with every ounce, of, every fiber of your body, yes. It's who he is. He's the one. He's the Christ. He alone can make this call on your life. In order to follow him, you must die to yourself. Now, I'm going to point you to these three reasons why he gives to follow him. And I'm going to be lickety-split through him. I want you to feel, though, what he's saying. And so, in chapter 16, verse 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Verse 25, the first word is what? For. Look at verse 26. The first word is what? For. Look at verse 27. The first word is what? For. These are reasons that Jesus gives to follow him now. To deny yourself, to take up your cross, and to obey him in all that he says. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. Look at the two words, the word will 
will lose it, will find it. It's referencing something that's going to happen in the future. And one of the things that is kind of woven throughout this, these three reasons is a future orientation. Jesus is saying something like this. Deny yourself now. Take up your cross now. Follow me now, for then it will go well with you. But if you don't follow me now, if you don't deny yourself, if you don't take up your cross, if you don't obey what I'm calling you to, it will not go well for you. So if you look at verse 25, you could read it like this. For whoever would save his life now will lose it then. But whoever loses his life for my sake now will find it then. And so when you look at whoever would save his life, when we hear the word save, we think positive. We think salvation, right? That's not how Jesus is using it. He's using it negatively. It's in contrast to denying yourself, taking up your cross, and follow him. And so what he's saying is, hey, if you're clinging to your life now and trying to protect your life now and trying to live a life that you think is going to bring you the greatest happiness that's separated from Jesus, you do that now, you lose it then. But if you give up that life now, for my sake, you gain it then. You gain life then. So the first reason he gives is this. Follow me now. And it will go really well for you for the rest of eternity. But if you don't follow me now, you will suffer for all of eternity. The second reason he gets at is you follow me now because the world does not have anything to offer you that will give you any hope on the day of judgment. Verse 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul on that day? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul on that day? You choose not to follow Jesus. You're a 20-year-old, and for the next 60 years of your life, you're just acquiring all sorts of houses and cars and money and people all around the world. God calls you to himself one day, and you're standing before the judgment throne of God. And you've got all this stuff in the bank. And you're looking at your judge, Jesus. What are you going to say? Look at my houses. Look at my cars. Look at my bank account. Look at my stuff. What would it profit you on that day? It's a rhetorical question. No profit. None. What can a man exchange for his life? There's nothing that this world offers that will be able to exchange for your soul on that day. Jesus is saying, life is not found in this world. Life is found in me. Follow me. In the last four is in verse 27. Jesus says, follow me now for I'm coming back. And when I come back, I'm going to judge everyone. Look at verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So those people who have rejected Christ 
and have just lived after this world, he will repay them. They will stand before them and give an account. Jesus, this is why I rejected you on earth. And he will repay them. He'll carry out judgment. But for those of us who bow our knee now and are saying, I'll follow you, deny myself, take up my cross, I'll obey you in all things. When he comes back, he knows that we've been living for him. We've responded in obedience and faith. And on that day, he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come into the joy of your master. The call that Jesus makes is to deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. And the reasons he gives are all future-oriented. Follow me now because judgment is coming and I'm the judge. Tomorrow morning, when you wake up, what will be your first thoughts? How about this? You wake up, and your first thoughts go something like this. Oh, today, Lord, today. It's my joy to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow you, for you, Lord Jesus, are, are where it's at. You are the one who matters most. Your mission, your fame, your glory. And so today, I deny myself, take up my cross, and I'll follow you wherever you go. Let's pray. God in heaven, would you press this call to discipleship in each of our hearts? Would you unite us together as a church who are denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following after Jesus? God, would you make us a people whose greatest desire is not for our own gain, but for the glory of Jesus in our life, in this city, and among the nations? God, would you bring great joy into our hearts when we call people to give it all up to follow Jesus? Because, Lord Jesus, you are worth it. Would you press that into our hearts? It's in the name of Christ I pray. Amen.